Ezekiel's visionary account in chapter 37 takes place sometime after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. And it opens with Ezekiel being moved by the Spirit of the Lord to the middle of a death valley where he sees massive piles of dry, bleached bones glistening under the Mesopotamian sun. They're not skeletons, but massive piles of bones strewn about as far as the eye can see. These bones have been picked clean by vultures and other carrion, the large numbers suggesting the remains of a major catastrophe. Ezekiel is amazed at their utter dryness, which suggests these bones have been lying on the valley surface for quite some time. What does this part of the vision mean? Well, spoiler alert, let's look down at verse 11. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. So we're told that these bones in the vision refer to the Israelites. In other words, the massive piles of bones strewn about the valley don't represent just any of Nebuchadnezzar's numerous victims who had been denied proper burial, but the entire house of Israel. Ezekiel understands that this disaster is not simply the unfortunate result of Babylon's empire building. Since nothing can happen unless God allows it, the people of Judah, especially their leaders, brought this ruin upon themselves by their persistent covenant disobedience. Again, listen to what they've been saying according to verse 11. Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Our bones are dried up. That was a common metaphorical way to express despair and lament in the ancient Near East. Many of you may have learned the scriptural melody and song, A Merry Heart Doeth Good Like a Medicine, But a Broken Spirit dries up the bones from Proverbs 17, 22. It's hard to overstate the depths of despair felt by the exiles after 586 BC. At its base is the belief that the Lord has finally and irrevocably rejected his people. Because again, as we know in 586 BC, the nation has been decimated and so the people are dispirited. They say our hope is lost. They believe the Lord has abandoned them. We are completely cut off. They've been orphaned from their land, from their beautiful city, from their temple. They've lost all hope in their future, and they've lost all hope in the Lord. And so in their minds, living in the land of their enemies, the pagan Babylonians, was a living death. As we've noted, Ezekiel has this vision, his third of four, after the destruction of his country in 586 BC. Utter despair and hopelessness have set in among his fellow exiles in Babylon. The Israelites have experienced the Lord's wrath and have concluded all hope is gone. Where's the Lord in all this, they wonder. So the spirit of the Lord leads Ezekiel to and fro around the bones to see for himself. No cursory glance will do. Everywhere Ezekiel steps, there are more and more bones. And Ezekiel takes in this picture of death in all its grisly horror 
and finality. Do you remember back in chapter 1, we learned that back in Jerusalem, Ezekiel had trained to be a priest. And so this walking among the dead bones would have been particularly appalling for him, since as a priest, he was forbidden by law to touch a dead body. Furthermore, the lack of a proper burial would also have been offensive to Ezekiel, who had been instructed in the necessity of the proper treatment of human corpses. In the ancient Near East in general, leaving the slain unburied was part of a treaty curse. And the Israelites had been warned by Moses century before that not being properly buried would be one of the curses they would suffer if they broke their covenant with the Lord. In verse 3, the Lord asked Ezekiel a curious question. Son of man, can these bones live? This expression, son of man, is used throughout the Old Testament to distinguish mortals from God. It's a Hebrew idiom that stresses the humanity of the individual. It means human or mortal, and it's the Lord's favorite designation for his prophet Ezekiel. Mortal, can these bones live? Imagine you're Ezekiel. Is this a trick question? We could dismiss the question as absurd, if not for the one who asked the question. You see, this question signals the central issue of the chapter. Now, Ezekiel knew the Lord was the giver of life. He may have well been aware of some of the episodes of resurrection that had taken place in Israel's history. The son of the Zarephath widow, the son of the Shunammite woman, the man who had been thrown into Elisha's tomb, but those examples were all of the recent dead, whereas these bones on the surface of the valley are the very dry and bleached bones of people long dead and gone. Did you notice that the question the Lord asks Ezekiel is not a theological question about the doctrine of the bodily resurrection in general? Listen again. Can these bones live? These jumbled together remnants of people long dead. When reading the Old Testament, I'm always trying to pay attention to what's repeated because that's one way to show emphasis in the Bible. These bones is repeated three times in verses three to five. Can't you just picture Ezekiel after the Lord asks him this question, scanning the valley of death and shaking his head at the enormity of it all. How would you have answered? Beyond fixing? Too late? Ezekiel answers by throwing the ball back in the Lord's court. O sovereign Lord, you alone know. The Lord's response to Ezekiel is that Ezekiel himself will be personally involved in providing the answer. The Lord tells Ezekiel to preach to this wasteland of bones and command them to hear the word of the Lord. As Christopher Wright observed, it's a well-attested anatomical fact that although ears have many bones, bones do not have ears. Ezekiel complies and preaches to the bones, declaring what the Lord will do for the bones. Let's read the second half of verse four, 
through verse 6. Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. The Lord will bring them back to life, and then they will recognize that he is the Lord. With a great rattling noise, toe bones are reconnected to feet bones, which are reconnected to ankle bones and calf bones, hip bones to spine bones. You get the picture. Next, ligaments attach the bones together, muscles cover over the bones, and then skin overlays the muscles. Decomposition in reverse. Did you notice what doesn't happen? There's no spontaneous breaking forth into a rousing chorus of reunited, and it feels so good. That will have to wait for peaches and herb in the 70s. Other images of restoration in the Bible often include dancing and singing and rejoicing. But something's still not right. The dry bones are indeed reconnected, but they're still dead. So now Ezekiel finds himself in the midst of a vast army of corpses. We can imagine a new flock of vultures circling above. Why? Because according to verse 8, there was no breath in them. They're reformed, but not revived. Ezekiel is commanded to prophesy a second time, but this time he is to direct his words not to the corpses, but to the breath or wind. At this point, it's worth noting that there's a play on words here that we miss in our English Bibles. The Hebrew word ruach, which is used 10 times in these 14 verses, four times alone in verse 9, is variously translated in your English Bibles as breath, wind, or spirit. And the basic meaning is air in motion. Whether ruach refers to human breath, a natural wind, or the divine spirit, it's all controlled by God who uses the ruach to bring life out of deadness. So, for a second time, Ezekiel does as he's commanded. He prophesies to the breath or wind, and the corpses become living beings again and stand on their feet as a great army. What is the significance of this two-staged process? Perhaps you notice that the two-stage process echoes the creation account of the first human in Genesis 2-7, where the Lord first created Adam out of the dirt, and then in an act of tender intimacy, the Lord breathed his spirit into his nostrils to bring him to life. The two-stage process here in the revivification of the bones suggests that it is nothing less than the powerful God of creation who stands behind Judah's future. Nothing can overcome the national death of the exile except the spirit, the Ruach of God. Not only does Ezekiel see a powerful vision of new life brought forth from death, 
but he himself becomes an agent in this fulfillment. Certainly, the Lord could have brought about these corpses to life without Ezekiel. It's God's Ruach who gives life, but Ezekiel himself is the instrument used. You see, dear friends, the Lord uses the faithful obedience of his people to accomplish his work, including bringing the dead to life. In verse 11, we have the turning point in the passage where the Lord provides both the occasion for the vision as well as its interpretation, as we've already discussed. The bones do not represent dead humanity in general, but the entire nation of Israel, which the Lord will bring back to life. This vision given to Ezekiel is the Lord's response to both his people's defeat at the hand of the Babylonians, as well as their despair and hopelessness. Notice that in verse 11, it is the Lord himself who informs Ezekiel what the people have been saying. The fact that the Lord informs Ezekiel what the people think and say is in itself proof that he has not abandoned his people. He's heard their cries of despair precisely because he's in their midst about to perform a great undertaking on their behalf. In verses 12 to 14, Ezekiel is commanded to preach for a third time, not to the bones or the breath or wind, but this time to his fellow exiles in Babylon, where he declares to them the Lord's response to their threefold lament. There's a shift in metaphors from dry bones in a valley to bodies in a cemetery being resurrected from the grave. Our bones are dried up. God will put his spirit in them and renew them as he had promised in chapter 36, verse 26, not so that they can return to their old way of life, but to a new way of faithful living. Our hope is lost. The Lord will reverse their spiritual death and they will live. We are completely cut off. He will bring them out of exile and return them to their own land. In other words, the Lord is promising them a comprehensive reversal, something only the Lord can accomplish. Did you notice that twice in these closing verses, the Lord refers to the exiles as my people? You see, the Lord had not abandoned them, their persistent covenant disloyalty and disobedience had merited them only death, but they're his people, and he had not forgotten his covenant with them. And so the passage ends in verse 14 with these words, Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. When the Lord accomplishes all these miraculous things for the benefit of his people, they will know who he is. You see, ultimately, Ezekiel 37 is not a picture of despair, but rather a message of hope and promise for God's people who have a future. Do we believe the God of Ezekiel 37 is still able to work in our midst today.